this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Andrea Steely, and I recently completed my thoracic surgery fellowship at Beth Israel Leahy Medical Center in Boston, where I rotated at Boston Children's Hospital for my congenital cardiac surgery experience. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. John Meyer from the world-renowned Boston Children's Hospital, where he is a senior associate in cardiac surgery and professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. During this podcast, rather than working through a specific case, we will review basic concepts in congenital heart disease in order to provide an intellectual framework for thinking about learning about, and understanding congenital heart disease. There's no doubt that the pathophysiology of congenital heart disease and the operations we perform to fix these lesions are complex. However, understanding some basic concepts will help us organize our thoughts, conceptualize the problems, and understand how to think about when and how to fix these lesions. So let's start with something simple. Why are some babies blue? Uh, A concept, actually, about cyanosis that works for all situations, whether it's due to pulmonary or cardiac disease, is that cyanosis or desaturation occurs when systemic venous blood reaches the arterial circulation without passing through a ventilated alveolus. In congenital heart disease, cyanosis occurs primarily because some part of the systemic venous return, the blue blood, does not reach the lungs and enters directly into the systemic circulation, the systemic arterial circulation from the heart due to a right-to-left shunt through an anatomic defect. What are some examples of cyanotic congenital cardiac lesions? Uh, The way I think about it is that uh, we can put cyanotic heart disease really into three major buckets or categories. The first is uh, what is termed conotruncal problems. So that's in uh, development of the heart. There's a big component of that development that depends on Uh, what embryologically is the conotruncus. And these uh, problems with how that segment of the heart develops uh, include tetralogy of flow, transposition, truncus, double outlet right ventricle, a number of so-called cyanotic uh, lesions. There also is a second group of cyanotic lesions that have to do with atresia of the right heart structures whether it's the tricuspid valve or the pulmonary valve or even the uh, absence of the right ventricle. Uh, And the last uh, sort of bucket, if you will, is uh, total anomalous pulmonary venous connection. So there's sort of an easy way to remember these, and and that that is that they represent the five Ts. So tetralogy, transposition, truncus, tricuspid atresia, and total anomalous pulmonary venous connection are the defects that are in these uh, T uh, cyanotic heart uh, problems. In each of these cyanotic defects, systemic venous blood reaches the systemic arterial circulation without passing through the lungs. And therefore, these patients are all cyanotic. In transposition, particularly detransposition, I should say, the systemic venous blood comes back to the right atrium, goes to the right ventricle, but the right ventricle is connected to the aorta, so the output 
of blue blood from that right ventricle goes right back out to the body uh, via the aorta. In truncus arteriosus, all of the systemic venous blood goes into the right ventricle, but the only outlet from the right ventricle is into the aorta, or more correctly, the truncal root. And the truncal root then gives rise to both the pulmonary arteries and the aorta, but what goes out each of those pathways is a mixture of systemic arterial, uh, systemic venous return and pulmonary venous return that's coming out of the left ventricle. In tricuspid atresia, all the systemic venous blood goes into the right atrium, but it then, because it, the only outlet is across the atrial septum, then it blood in the right atrium egresses into the left atrium, and then it mixes with the pulmonary venous return and that combination of red and blue blood then goes into the left ventricle and out to the body. How do we know in which direction blood travels if there is a shunt? So the direction of a shunt across an anatomic cardiac defect is determined by the, if you will, the path of least resistance. The blood will go where it's easiest to go. So as a general principle, one should look to the chamber or vascular bed that is downstream to where the defect is located. Uh, for example, when the patient has an atrial septal defect, the direction of the shunt is determined by the ratio of the compliances of the right and left ventricle. That's the next chamber downstream, if you will, in the pathway that blood flows. In the case of a small ASD, there might be a pressure difference between the left and right atria, but for a larger ASD, the direction of flow depends only on the relative compliances of the right and left ventricles. Similarly, for both VSDs and a PDA or an AP window, the direction of flow is determined by the ratio between the systemic vascular resistance and the pulmonary vascular resistance. Most of the time in these uh, circulations, the pulmonary resistance is lower than the arterial resistance, and so the blood goes left to right from the systemic into the pulmonary circulation. In some cases, there can be an anatomic contribution to the resistance to blood flow. And particular example would be in tetralogy of flow where there is anatomic right ventricular outflow tract obstruction. And because resistances are additive, uh, that is added to whatever resistance is posed by the pulmonary vascular bed. And this combined resistance is what one considers as relative to the systemic vascular resistance. So uh, if a patient uh, has a net resistance between the anatomic obstruction and pulmonary vascular resistance that still remains lower than the systemic vascular resistance, then that patient will actually shunt left to right across the ventricular septal defect. And that would be consistent with what we commonly refer to as a pink uh, tetralogy. Uh, and it explains why some tetralogy patients can be fully saturated most of the time, but then will episodically desaturate uh, if 
the obstruction, particularly at the infundibular level, worsens, uh, then total resistance to pulmonary blood flow thereby goes up, and then the blood can go right to left at the VSD level. And what about heart failure? How and why do patients with congenital cardiac lesions, including neonates, infants, and children, develop heart failure? So, uh, as we also see in the adult cardiac surgery world, heart failure in patients with congenital lesions develops because of overload. And those overloads can be either a volume overload, which is much more common in the congenital world, or a pressure overload, which is certainly more common in the adult world. Depressed ventricular contractility as a cause of heart failure generally occurs in the pediatric population in patients with pressure overloads, and most commonly uh, patients with volume overload as the cause of their heart failure actually have normal contraction of the heart. So just to reiterate, patients with pressure loads, particularly little newborn babies uh, who have obstructive lesions to the left heart, uh, have heart failure uh, because of the obstruction and decreased uh, ability of the myocardium to pump blood against the elevated resistance. But most patients with shunt lesions, in particular left to right shunts, uh, have normal contractility and their heart failure manifestations are uh, a result of just a volume overload. So, um, in regard to that issue about uh, volume overload, there are really two ways that happens. Left to right shunts with increased pulmonary blood flow. So the so-called pulmonary to systemic ratio, flow ratio or QPQS, uh, typically is in excess of two to one uh, in patients who develop heart failure uh, from these left to right shunts. Uh, and the other etiology uh, for heart failure symptoms in patients with volume overload in the congenital arena uh, is typically when they have a valvar regurgitation, uh, typically the aortic and mitral valves. Um, primary tricuspid valvar regurgitation is actually pretty uncommon in the pediatric population with the exception of patients who are born with Epstein's anomaly of the tricuspid valve. As I mentioned, pressure overload is typically the result of obstruction to left heart emptying, so aortic valvar stenosis and coarctation of the aorta are two common causes of that. Most of the patients who have heart failure are not cyanotic unless the heart failure is actually causing pulmonary edema, which then uh, is a pulmonary cause, if you will, for uh, cyanosis. How do these patients present? So the clinical picture really depends uh, on their age. So in neonates, particularly those with obstructive left heart lesions in particular, present with uh, inability to pump blood into the systemic circulation. So they have low output heart failure because of the excess afterload on their left ventricle. And uh, so again, the common lesions are coarctation or uh, critical aortic valvar stenosis. In uh, infants, that is outside the neonatal period, 
uh, a classic sort of presentation is that uh, parents will report difficulty feeding, uh, tachypnea, breathing fast, uh, sweating with uh, feeding, uh, and uh, the pediatrician would typically report that the child is falling off the growth curve, has so-called failure to thrive, uh, and uh, on physical exam, not only will the heart be sort of hyperdynamic in the chest and a murmur would be heard, but also those patients typically have hepatomegaly. That's a common sign of heart failure in an infant. Uh, in older children outside the first few years of life, uh, heart failure is much less common, but frequently can present as exercise limitation uh, and uh, the physical examination is other than the murmurs uh, and evidence for cardiac enlargement uh, is uh, much closer to what it would be in an adult. They might actually even have uh, rals and, and uh, uh, a big liver as well. Uh, I do want to say that uh, as I said earlier, most uh, children with heart failure uh, due to uh, shunts are in the <clears throat> pediatric age group will not be cyanotic, but there is a group of patients who are both cyanotic and in heart failure. And in these patients, they have both right-to-left shunting, which is how they get cyanotic, but also increased pulmonary blood flow and two sort of common examples would be patients with truncus arteriosus and patients with transposition of the great arteries with a large VSD. How do we decide which patients with congenital heart disease need urgent or emergent intervention and who can safely wait? There, there are really a number of uh, congenital cardiac lesions that are re life-threatening really right from uh, the time of birth. Uh, and require immediate attention. Uh, and a few examples of these are, as we described previously, patients with critical coarctation or critical aortic stenosis, uh, patients with hypoplastic left heart uh, syndrome where they don't have the ability to create a cardiac output from the left heart, uh, pulmonary uh, or uh, tricuspid valvular atresia, transposition, uh, are all forms of so-called critical congenital heart disease. The pathophysiology of each of these congenital lesions is so complex and unique. Is there a key principle we should use to guide how we think about how to treat these patients? Well, for the neonates um, in particular, when one is trying to think about how to uh, allow them to survive, uh, the key concept is uh, to restore the fetal circulation. Uh, and the element of that that's so important is to maintain patency of the ductus arteriosus, which is most commonly now done with uh, prostaglandin infusions, prostaglandin E1. The only exception to that in the group of patients with uh, critical, so-called critical congenital heart disease uh, are the patients who have uh, obstructed total anomalous pulmonary venous connection. And it's 
fortunately for congenital heart surgeons, it's uh, one of the only remaining true make a mad dash to the operating room sort of uh, situations because it's very hard to palliate this. Even if the ductus is open, if the blood can't get out of the lungs uh, because of obstruction of the uh, pulmonary veins, uh, then there's no way the patient can oxygenate and the patient uh, will not survive uh, without either mechanical support or uh, a repair. So in all the other situations uh, that uh, where we try to restore the fetal circulation by maintaining uh, ductal patency, uh, it gives us a real opportunity to resuscitate the patients uh, to get perioperative, I'm sorry, perinatal uh, insults uh, recuperated or recovered, uh, including renal function and hepatic function, uh, which both can be major uh, sequelae of uh, not having good uh, systemic cardiac output once the ductus closes. Uh, you know, these patients will really be what we call shocked out. Uh, and they really have severe end organ dysfunction. So it's a pretty important concept to get them resuscitated by reestablishing ductal patency and to use the ductus as a mechanism by which we restore systemic cardiac output. There's, there's another uh, important uh, situation in which it's also a uh, useful to reestablish uh, the ductal patency, and that is when one has atresia of the pathway from the right ventricle out to the lungs. So then we provide a source of pulmonary blood flow in those situations by keeping the ductus arteriosus open. Intuitively, it actually makes a lot of sense for why we would keep the ductus open because that's how the baby survived during all of the time in utero. Uh, even if outflow from the left heart or the right heart was completely obstructed, the baby can survive because the ductus allows blood to go from the pulmonary circulation to the systemic circulation, as in obstructive left heart lesions, or from the systemic circulation into the pulmonary circulation in obstructive right heart lesions. So this simple concept about keeping the ductus open and preserving the fetal circulation is, uh, is a very important concept in treating neonates with critical congenital heart disease. Now you mentioned fetal circulation. Can we briefly review that? Sure, so in the fetus, remember that the two ventricles work in parallel, not in series like they do in a typical adult uh, circulation that presumably is operative in the vast majority of adults uh, in the world. Uh, in utero, the right ventricle actually supplies the vast majority of the blood flow to the lower part of the body and the placenta, importantly. Uh, and that right heart ejects into the systemic circulation into the descending aorta through the patent ductus. The left heart is really only supplying blood to itself, to the heart, through the coronaries, the brain, and the upper part of the body by what it ejects out through the aortic valve. 
one of the reasons that the blood doesn't from the right heart doesn't just go into the lungs is because the pulmonary resistance in utero is actually higher than the resistance to blood flow, particularly through the lower part of the body. And remember, the placenta is really a low resistance circuit. So uh, one might wonder how it is that a baby can survive if all of the blood is coming out or the vast majority of the blood that's going to the body uh, is uh, desaturated blood that's coming back to the right ventricle. But in that context, one should remember that the normal PO2 in a fetus is only about 35. And so one might think of the fetus as being adapted and accommodated and will not be bothered by having a PO2 in the 35 or 40 uh, range uh, because that's what they've been accustomed to for the last nine months. Uh, in addition, the fetus, uh, at least in the first uh, week or so of life, will still have a significant amount of fetal hemoglobin, uh, which is uh, present uh, from uh, the in utero circulation. And remember that fetal hemoglobin has a leftward shifted oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve compared to so-called adult hemoglobin. And the result is that for any given PO2, fetal hemoglobin actually has a higher oxygen saturation and oxygen content for the same PO2. And what is QPQS and how do I calculate it? So um, the calculation of QPQS is pretty important in uh, obviously in managing patients with uh, congenital heart disease, but remember too that adults can acquire left to right shunts. Post-infarct VSD is, certainly comes to mind. Uh, and so I think it's sort of one of these things that you really just should know. Um, it gives us a quantitative measure of the significance of any shunt, uh, which you can do without having, without really knowing the absolute values of the flows, because when you make this calculation, you're taking flow out of the two sides of the equation, if you will. Uh, they cancel each other out. So the formula really just depends on measuring oxygen saturations. Um, and it uh, can be described as the ratio of pulmonary to systemic blood flow equals the aortic saturation minus the mixed venous saturation. And that entity or that quantity divided by the pulmonary vein saturation versus the pulmonary arterial saturation. So what one has to know under these circumstances is the oxygen saturation in each of those places, the pulmonary artery, the aorta, the systemic venous blood, and the pulmonary venous blood. But in the usual set of circumstances, and particularly in patients with left to right shunts, you actually, actually only need to measure the systemic venous saturation, usually in the superior vena cava, and the PA saturations 
because if the patient's fully saturated, then you can make the assumption that the pulmonary vein saturation is also fully saturated, so they're both 100%. In taking care of young patients with palliated circulations, you know, this has another use, uh, not just calculating the QPQS uh, for an estimation of how big your left to right shunt is, but also it gives you a way to think about whether or not your circulation is working, if you have enough systemic cardiac output. And I'll illustrate that uh, as follows. Um, if you reorganize or rearrange that QPQS equation and you actually solve for the aortic saturation, what you'll find is that that arterial saturation really depends on the other three variables, the pulmonary venous saturation, the systemic venous oxygen saturation, and the relative amounts of pulmonary and systemic blood flow. There's one caveat to that, and that is that within the heart, because of whatever the kind of heart disease is, for instance, tricuspid atresia, where all the venous blood has got to pass into the left heart, there has to be complete mixing of systemic and venous blood. Uh, and this doesn't work so well if you have so-called streaming where you might have, like you might have in transposition where all the right ventricular blood goes out the aorta and the left ventricular blood goes out the pulmonary artery without them really mixing together. When one is considering the management of a post-operative palliated single ventricle patient, whether it's a hypoplastic left heart patient or a patient with tricuspid atresia who's had a shunt, uh, two sort of paradigmatic examples, uh, there always is this tendency to sort of look at the arterial saturation and use that as the gauge to decide whether or not the patient is doing well or not doing well. But when you think of it in terms of that rearranged shunt equation, where the output variable is the arterial saturation, you now can start remembering that the arterial saturation is markedly influenced by the mixed venous saturation in such a palliated circulation. And in particular, a patient who has a low cardiac output with a low mixed venous saturation but an elevated QPQS can actually have a saturation that is pretty much what you would hope for in a palliated single ventricle, that is having a saturation of about 80%. So uh, it's easy to get fooled that way and that's why it's particularly important for you to keep in mind that relationship that the systemic venous oxygen saturation actually can have a pretty important impact on the systemic arterial saturation uh, and one shouldn't be lulled into complacency by uh, what would appear to be the right 80% uh, uh, arterial saturation in a patient with palliated single ventricle. That may be a little esoteric, but I think uh, particularly when you have these kinds of situations where you have 
as I said, palliated single ventricle. Uh, it, it's a very important concept to keep in mind. Dr. Meyer, this has been so incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for discussing these basic concepts with us and making them so much easier to understand. Thank you very much. Happy to help.